Welcome Life Church. So excited to have you with us online this morning for our morning service. And also just want to say a special welcome to uh, those of you who are new with, this, uh, new with us this morning. We're so glad to have you be a part. So however you came to encounter us, either on YouTube or Facebook Live, we're so excited to have you there. Okay, so feel free to comment. Let us know who you are. And I hope that you do. Be brave, okay, because we want to interact with you, get to know you, and just say welcome and say thanks for joining us. And uh, whatever your religious background, uh, whether it's religious or not at all, um, we're really excited to have you. And we're going to hop into the parables of Jesus this morning, where he's going to be talking to us about the spiritual realities of his kingdom. And we believe they're so so potent and powerful that... um, that you just might find that there's something to this whole following Jesus thing. And so really hope that you stick with us through the duration of this service. Life Church family, feel free to comment as well. Get on there, interact with each other in the chat. Okay, we love seeing that community kind of happen there where we're, though we're not together, but we're, you know, being able to be in a relationship to some degree where we're able to interact with one another in the chat. So would love to have you guys do that, okay? All right, well, here in a moment, we're going to be hopping into Matthew 18, uh, starting in verse 21. So if you are a reader header, you can feel free to go there ahead of us, and we'll be there in just a moment. But uh, if the, the title of the message this morning, if you take notes, I always think that that's a good practice, by the way. Have a notebook open next to you when you're engaging with God's Word so that you can take some notes and reflect on them uh, later. Uh, the title of the message this morning is Forgiven Yet Unforgiving. Forgiven yet unforgiving. Well, I'm a dad, and uh, I'll take any excuse I can to talk about my two boys, Jack and Calvin. Jack's getting ready to turn four. Calvin has recently turned one. And uh, as it relates to Jack, he's getting to the age where he's beginning to recognize uh, his inner attitudes and motivations desires, and we're able to kind of uh, point them out to him. See, children have a way, if you're a parent or if you've interacted with children to any degree, you know this to be true, so they have a way of kind of showing uh, their inner motivations on their sleeve. They just wear them. We as adults, we've uh, begun to, for the most part, some of us better than others, we're able to kind of hide some of those inner motivations. They, we keep them on the inside, but they let them out, right? And so what we're trying to do with Jack is help him recognize those attitudes and help shape them, okay? Because what do we know? If we can shape the attitudes and desires and thoughts, then we'll by result shape the actions because we all live from the inside out, all of us. Um, Children just have a way of showing those a little bit, demonstrating those attitudes a little bit more clearly than we do as adults. But we all live from the inside out. Um, So as a parent, one of the more difficult actions to handle, even if it's not a big action, it's just it kind of grades you a little bit, is when they act in a way that shows that they don't understand the way that you as a parent have treated them. So for example, when a child, um, maybe you have multiple uh, children and like one older sibling who has a little bit more strength, power physically than the younger. And what do you find? You, they, you find these weird little moments, right, where the older sibling does this sort of thing. Like, so you have like a younger sibling over here and, and uh, uh, they're just kind of walking along, minding their own business. And you have an older sibling who's kind of running around. And he just kind of like walks on, bumps into the other one. And you're like, as a parent, you're just kind of going, wait, wait a minute. Hey, what happened? You just 
bumped into him for no reason. It's like, why did you do that? I don't know. Well, I know as a parent, I'm reading between the lines here a little bit, is that that action was really out of no other reason other than just to feel a little bit more powerful and demonstrate your dominance in some sort of way over the younger sibling. You know what I'm talking about? And why does that kind of grade us a little bit? It's because, well, me as a parent, I'm not going around just kind of like bumping into people and saying, oh, well, you know, really sorry that happened, just to demonstrate that I have more strength. So that's what, it's not that it's just mean, it's that they don't understand how I have treated them as a parent or how you have treated them as a parent, right? Because if they recognize that, it should change a little bit of how they respond to others, right? Or for instance, when a child uh, refuses to share with another, when a child refuses to share with another, it's not that it's not just that selfishness is a poor quality to possess, and it certainly is, but it's that they don't recognize themselves how you as a parent have been so generous to them that all of those toys have been provided by you, that you're, as a parent, the one allowing all of those toys to be used, and if they just recognize how you have been so generous to them, shouldn't that affect their generosity towards maybe another sibling or a friend, something like that? It's not just that it's not just the action, right? It's how the action reveals the inner motive and attitude that they possess. And that it's an attitude that shows that they don't recognize how they themselves have been treated uh, so uh, generously or so graciously. So my question then becomes, I wonder, I wonder if we, as adults, um, are more like children than we might realize. We're just better at hiding it, right? We might find that we're um, more like children than we realize. I suspect that we are. So let's go to Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21, going to verse 35. And the way we're going to handle this this morning is um, we're going to walk through this parable somewhat slowly. I'm not just going to read through it. We're going to pause and try to draw out some of the richness of the text, some of the things that maybe the original hearers might have heard that was uh, more clear to them. And maybe when we're reading through it in our English translation, some of these things don't uh, necessarily pop out to us um, right away. And so I'm going to try to draw attention to some of those things so that we can feel the full weight of what it was that Jesus was saying. All right, so start in verse 21 here. Then Peter came to him and asked the Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? See, apparently Peter reasoned that there was some limit, uh, that there was some moderation that needed to be practiced as it relates to for forgiveness. And he had spent enough time around Jesus to know that Jesus' teaching is probably far more radical than that of the rabbis. Peter would have been aware of this, that the rabbis would have taught that th- three times was to the extent that you needed to forgive someone, three times. And so he goes, well, I know Jesus is far more radical than them, so surely seven times would be enough, right? But there's still got to be some sort of limit. There's still got to be some sort of calculation that needs to take place here for us to know whether or not we can forgive this person. Well, then Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven is Jesus' response. What is he saying? See, Jesus is not concerned with 
petty forgiveness that calculates how many offenses can be made or that says, well, these offenses are forgivable, but these ones aren't. Uh, He's not concerned with the petty calculation uh, that we want to go to, that we're so readily to go to. He goes, no, forgiveness in my kingdom. If you're a part of my kingdom following Jesus, this is what it looks like. It's wholehearted, it's constant, and it's complete. And if we really understand what Jesus is saying, we feel the weight of what he's saying and I think this is what Peter was feeling is how can we do that surely there's got to be some sort of limit right surely there's got to be some sort of calculation to what can be forgiven see I think of the 2006 um Amish schoolhouse shooting. Maybe you remember that and how it was in national news for a period of time where um, Charles Roberts, a non-Amish, went into a Amish schoolhouse, tied up 10 girls between the ages of 6 and 13 and shot them, killing five of them and injuring the others before killing himself. And then look what happened. This was what rocked um, the nation was the response of the Amish community to such a tragic event. Within hours of the shooting, the Amish community had come around both the parents of the shooter and the wife and his three children who lived in the area. They came to express their sympathy and say that we want to be with you in the hard days ahead. Can you imagine losing your child in such a tragic event and then going and, and, and showing that kind of kindness and forgiveness to the family? of the person who did such an awful thing to you and to your family? When the shooter's funeral occurred, more than half the people who were in the funeral uh, were Amish. And the Amish spokesperson said that all the family members who lost their children forgave the shooter and his family wanted to be there. They, 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 we're not going to hold this against you. We're not going to make you pay. And this should cause us, this is what, was, what Peter was thinking. He's going, how could this be? Really, Jesus, how could we do that? Well, then Jesus is going to tell them a parable to show them how this is, how this could be true, how you can do this if you're a part of his kingdom. And this is far different than any other worldview. This gives us resources to be far more radical and generous in our living and our relationships with people than any other worldview, I believe. So let's look at the the parable Jesus tells us. Verse 23, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with his servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of of dollars. What is Jesus trying to communicate? The point here is that this debt that this first servant owes this king is an unimaginable amount. I'm not even quite sure that the millions of dollars communicates what Jesus was really getting at. Maybe you're reading it in a different English translation and it says 10,000 talents. Well, the talent was the highest unit of currency and 10,000 is the highest Greek numeral. And so what is Jesus really trying to communicate? This is like a billion pounds. This is like an unimaginable amount of money that he owes. It's an impossible debt to repay. Verse 25 is he couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife and his children and everything he owned to pay the debt. Now watch this. You'll you'll want to remember verse 26 because it's parallel to another verse later on. 
But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me and I will pay it all. With such a huge debt hanging over his head, there was no chance, no chance of him being free again. Everything was lost. What do you mean pay it all? That's ridiculous. How could you pay it all? He knew it. The master knew it. There's no way for him to pay back such a a huge debt. And so he's exercising everything that he has because he knows the weight of his debt. The the Greek tense of of the term plea or beg in this version is... Uh, that he kept on pleading, that it indicates that this was no half-hearted plea on his part, that he kept on, he did it with everything in him. And what was, what happened next then? Well, his master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave him his debt. Didn't even hear it. Didn't even hear him as he tried to ask for forbearance and he's saying, I'll pay it all, which he knew that he couldn't pay it all. And so, uh, he, he, but he doesn't even ask him to pay a little bit or even give him more time. He simply just cancels the debt. Why? Out of a motivation of pity, compassion, care for this servant. King ignored him trying to ask for more time. Prison no longer hanging over his head. He just freely forgave. That was all. There was no conditions, no hesitation. It was what? An act of pure grace. Just pure grace. Verse 28. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. Maybe you're reading it in a translation and it says a hundred denarii. And then he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. How could this be? He was just forgiven uh, an unimaginable sized debt. And now a few thousand dollars? I mean, that's all it was. A hundred denarii is the normal day's wage for an ordinary laborer. And so that we're talking about a few months wages of work. This was at least a manageable debt that this person could be paid back. Do you know? Do you know how many denarii there was to one talent? 6,000. So imagine the vast difference of debts that they had. This person's debt, the first servant's, was unimaginable size. The, the second servant's was at least something that could be paid back. This is not, I mean, it's no insignificant amount, but it's a manageable size debt. But yet he still demands his rights of repayment, grabs him by the throat, demands instant payment, and he But watch how this fellow servant responds. Verse 29, his fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it. You notice how he uses the same words. He has the same action. He falls down. He begs. He pleads. He says, I'll pay it. Be patient with me. But even though this servant responds in the same way he did, The first servant won't hear it. His creditor wouldn't wait, verse 30 says, and he had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Verse 31, 
When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. The, the word order in the Greek is all that debt I forgave you, which puts all the emphasis on all. All that tremendous debt that I forgave you. Don't you remember all that I did for you? And then verse 33, this is is a big statement. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? See how the king goes after the heart? It's not just about the action. Just like you as a parent go after the heart, you go after the attitude, not just the action. See, we... If we were looking at this just based on actions, you might have expected the king to say something like, well, I forgave your debt, I canceled your debt, shouldn't you have canceled his debt? But he goes, no, shouldn't you have had mercy just like I had mercy on you? In other words, here's what should have happened. The king is saying, I can't believe that you weren't changed by the mercy I showed you. And you're showing that you weren't changed, that you are no different than you were before, that the grace I showed you has not changed you. And so therefore, this is going to be the result. But the grace I showed you should have changed you to the point where you can have grace and show mercy to others. But it didn't. It didn't go to your heart. Then the angry king sent the man to prison, to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from the heart. So what resulted? Because the man showed clearly that he was unchanged by the grace shown him, he himself must now suffer the consequence for the debt that he owed. So he's handed over to the torturers. And that word torturers is a word found only here in the New Testament. And it's not meant to um, draw our attention to correlate that to God's character. It's meant to show the depth to which this sin will now affect his life. That this is what um, unforgiveness will do to you. It will eat you alive. It will torture you. The point is this, is that what right do you think that you have to be forgiven before God when you withhold forgiveness from others? If you're unchanged by it and unchanged by the grace that he wants to show you and you're not showing it to others, well, then you will suffer the consequences for your own debt. So there's our story. Now, you can already begin to see some of the implications for you personally, but let's try to point some of them out a little bit more clearly here. We want to go to three three different areas here, and we'll close. The first is this. The first servant had a moment of feeling the weight of his debt, but he was left unchanged by his release from it. He had a moment of feeling it. He pled, he pleaded, but he was left unchanged. What happened? He did not demonstrate true repentance. That this is why he was not able to forgive the second servant. Because he did not demonstrate true repentance. How? How do we do that then? Well, my question to you is this. Do you see the weight of your debt? Do you see the weight of your debt before King Jesus? Do you see the weight of your debt? Because if you can really feel the weight and see the weight of that debt and then let it melt your heart that you are perfectly accepted even in light of that debt well, then it'll change you. 
You'll be a different person who's able to be gracious with even some of the worst atrocities that can happen here. Because why? Because you know the weight of your debt before him. So do you see the weight of your debt? Do you demonstrate true repentance? Um, Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, um, once said this, Don't get mad when someone says something bad about you, because you're far worse than they think you are. The Puritans considered it to be of high spiritual value to clearly look at one's sins, to spend time looking at it, to reflect upon um, the broken areas of your life as a Christian. Because why? The more someone sees the depth of their sin, the more love they'll have for the one who paid for them. And this lines up perfectly what Jesus said in another place. In another place, he said, those who are forgiven much, love much. And now some of us are going, oh man, if only I could just be forgiven much, then I would love much. No, you've already been forgiven much. That just shows that you don't recognize the inner motivations and the brokenness in your own heart. Because if you can spend time looking at that and seeing the weight of it, seeing that even when you're doing something right, you have the tendency to do it wrong and with wrong motive. You know, if you can spend time seeing it, then you'll recognize, wow. It'll melt your heart because you're perfectly accepted even in light of all of that. John Newton shows us this when he uh, pointed out that as we grow to become more like Jesus, that we struggle more with what are called the thorns in the flesh. This is not because the thorns increase, but because they appear increasingly ugly to us. See, the, in light of his grace, in light of what he's done to us, we, we draw near to him. And then as we're drawing near to him, those things become increasingly ugly to us. We, we recognize, wow, I can't believe I'm perfectly accepted in light of that. Uh, these things lose their hold on you because you love him. And as your desires for him... Those things are contrary to who he is. Those sins are contrary to the nature of Jesus. And so those things lose their power and they become increasingly ugly to you. Martin Luther opened up the Reformation by nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. And the first of these theses was, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So whether in good times, repentance, bad times, repentance, suffering, repentance, that this is the answer. This is um, what will draw us deeper into our relationship with Jesus. And now that might have a somewhat of a bitterness to you. You might go, I don't know how to do that. I, I don't enjoy repentance. I don't like that term because it involves reflecting on the bad parts of who I am. Well, if it's sheerly bitter to you and has no sweetness in it, then you might be religiously repenting, but not gospel repenting. You might religiously repent, and that's what leads to bitterness, but if you're repenting in a gospel way, it leads to a sweetness. Let me explore that with you for a minute. Tim Keller um, says this, it is important to consider how the gospel affects and transforms the act of repentance. See, in religion, the purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy so that he will continue to bless you and answer your prayers. Okay, I got to do this so that he comes through for me. I, I got to repent. I got to, you know, I got to beat myself up a little bit over here so that, so that God, you know, continues to answer my prayers and will give me what I want. 
But this means that religious repentance is selfish and self-righteous and is bitter all the way to the bottom. But in the gospel, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. See, gospel repentance, do you see that? It's to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Jesus, that I'm united with him, that uh, God was faithful and just to forgive me. He was just, he was just, it would have been unjust for God not to forgive me if I'm following Jesus. Why? Because Jesus already paid the debt. God can't, can't, it's not just of him to get double payment on what's already been paid for by Jesus. So that's why it says in 1 John, that God is faithful and just to forgive those who are trusting in Jesus. So I, I'm perfectly accepted, even in light of my junk, my past, present, future sin. And what does that do as I reflect on that? Is it melts my heart and, I, and those other things, those sins, they lose their power. They lose, I lose a desire for them. But in religious repentance, it's selfish. Why? Because we're really only sorry for the consequences that the sin has gotten us in. We're not sorry for the sin itself. We're sorry that we're about to get punishment or to have some sort of bad result come in our life. And so we repent in order to try to get out of the punishment. But that then is self-centered. That's self-centered. You're looking out for you. But the gospel makes repentance God-centered. In religion, we're sorry for the consequence, but in the gospel, we're sorry for the sin itself, the thing itself. In religion, repentance is self-righteous. It thinks that repentance is a form of earning back favor with God then. So I'll only do repentance, I'll beat myself up, I'll punish myself in some way in order to try to earn back favor with God and just say, hey, look, God, look how bad I'm treating myself. I know I did a bad thing, but look how I'm punishing myself. I'm going through this hard thing right now for you, and so I need to earn back favor with you now. But that's, do you see how that is self-righteous? See, maybe you're a young person and you struggle with cutting yourself and you're going, I know I have this junk in my life, but look how I'm punishing myself in this. Well, that's religious repentance. Maybe you're a churchgoer and you've been a Christian for a long time, but your devotional life is really only good after you've needed to repent for something. So you felt bad about something that you did, and so the next two weeks of your devotional life are actually pretty good. Why? Because you're just trying to earn back favor with God, going, hey, look, God, see how I'm in the Word, see how I'm spending time with prayer. But there was no sweetness in that time with God. There was no, there was no beauty and true desire to do it. You were just doing it to try to earn back favor with God because you feel like you've blown it in some area. And that's self-righteous repentance. And it's bitter. It's bitter all the way to the bottom to repent in a religious way. And you don't, see, if you're, if you're repenting in a religious way, you will repent less and less and less often. Not like Martin Luther said, to where all of life is repentance. Why? Because you're standing in a religious sense, you're standing before God is completely dependent upon how good you've been doing. And so in order to look at the bad things about your life, well, that would make you look like you're not doing that good measuring up. So you don't want to look at it. 
You know, look at it because that means I'm not measuring up. I'm not being good enough. But in the gospel, I know I'm not good enough. So I can clearly look at the junk in my life because I know I'm perfectly accepted in spite of it. Do you see? Are you beginning to see the power of grace? The power that sheer free grace has in your life when you really understand it and when you really know it? And if you do... If you really understand grace, you'll be changed by it. And if you've really been changed by it, you will show it. And that's what this first servant in this parable could not do. He did not have true repentance. He was not really changed by the grace that was shown him. He did not really understand the weight of the forgiveness that was shown him. And he showed it when he went and demanded payment for such a smaller sin, for a smaller debt that was owed him. So that's the first point. Do you see the weight of your own sin? Have you demonstrated true repentance? And the second point is this. The size of the debt created against you does not matter. In light of what he's done for you, the unimaginable size debt that he's, done, that he's paid for you, that he canceled for you, so therefore, any smaller debt, any other debt that's committed against you, the size of it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, I think a good example of this might be um, of how when Melissa and I do premarital counseling with couples, one of the things that we tell them that they need to learn how to do is to take responsibility for or absorb the other person's sin. What does that mean? What do, what do, what do, you, what do you mean? You might be thinking uh, indignantly, well, how could I absorb or take responsibility for my spouse's sin? What are you talking about? I didn't do this or that thing. You know, they did that thing. So I'm not going to take responsibility for it. That's on them. Well, what are we saying when we're saying take a responsibility or absorb it? What we're saying is in light of the great debt that has been given to you, you can absorb the smaller debts against you. And you can do it willingly. You can do it with joy because what does it do? It causes you to reflect upon, again, the great forgiveness, the great debt that's been canceled on your behalf before God. Did you? But you're like, oh, but it hurts, Eric. I can't do that. I can't just let them go. I can't just, I can't just forgive. What are you talking about? Somebody needs to pay, and you're right. Somebody will always pay when it comes to forgiveness. Either you will make them pay or you will absorb it yourself. Well, how do you make them pay? You withhold relationally, or you wish bad things upon them, or behind their back, you're kind of gossiping about them, and you're going, um, you know, you're trying to undercut their life rather than um, desiring the best for them. So you're making them pay. You know how you do this with your spouse if you're married. You, you, um, you, you say, sleep on the couch, or you say, I need to get out of here for a while, and you just you just kind of, you know what I'm talking about? You know what buttons to push on your spouse, and we also also know it with friendships. We know what buttons to push to make them pay rather than absorbing it. But in absorbing it, what's it going to cost? It's going to cost you. So in order to not make them pay, you'll have to pay just like Jesus did for yours. So don't think it's not going to cost you. Of course it will. But that doesn't mean that you're excusing it either. C.S. Lewis said this about forgiving and excusing. Forgiving does not mean excusing. They think if you ask them to forgive someone who has cheated or bullied them, you are trying to make out that there's really no cheating or bullying. But if that were so, there would be nothing to forgive. You see... The very fact that you feel the pain of forgiving shows that something real has happened. You're acknowledging something real has happened. A real debt has taken place. 
Forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is feeling the pain, but absorbing that debt every time you see that person and you choose to treat them graciously instead of make them pay. Forgiveness is feeling the pain of absorbing the debt every time you see that person and choosing to treat them graciously instead. So Lewis says this, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son, how can we do it? It's a good question. It's the question Peter's asking. It's the question that we're asking. How can I do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, he says. By meaning our words when we say our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. Remembering where we stand, that we've been forgiven, and meaning a prayer that goes, God, I acknowledge and I'm thankful that you've forgiven such a great debt, so forgive me as I forgive those. See, you're demonstrating that you understand the forgiveness that's been shown to you when you say, I'm forgiving others. So the size of it doesn't matter. The third thing is that the first servant had a genuine plea in a moment, but he showed that he was really only sorry that he got called to account by his lack of heart change. So my question to you is this. Have you had a moment of plea to God, but shown that it was nothing deeper than emotions born out of fear? That your, your, your repentance was really not a heart change, <laughs> It was just a plea to God in a moment that was out of sheer emotion. It was emotionalism. Now, sure, I'm not against emotion. I think that God has created us as humans to be emotional beings, and we have emotional responses to something, but that's different than emotionalism. And see, Jesus, if you read through the gospel, he has a way of um, speaking to people and causing them to wonder whether or not they are true followers True disciples or just counterfeit followers? And this is one of those demonstrations that this first servant demonstrates by his lack of heart change that was shown by how he treated the other servant. He showed that he's a counterfeit servant, that he's a counterfeit Christian, that he's not really a follower. He was just sorry in a moment, driven by emotion and fear, but it wasn't really that he was sorry for the thing itself. He's just sorry that he got called to account. And how do you know, if, how do you know where, where you fall? Let me, let me tell you a story to try to draw that attention, draw attention to that. How do you know if you're on the emotional side where you were just, you had an emotional plea driven, out of emotion, driven by emotion in a moment or whether it was genuine? Well, the question is whether or not it lasts. Whether or not heart change lasts. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great preachers of the last century, once Uh, was preaching a series of evangelistic sermons. And uh, one evening he was really preaching and um, going for it, and he could tell that there was a a man in the balcony who was clearly having an emotional response to that which was being preached. really seemed like he was resonating with it. And and you can imagine if you're a preacher, you're kind of going, yeah, okay, this means this is landing, this is hitting home. And uh, after the message was over, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is talking to another individual, but this person who is having a rather emotional response to the message comes forward to try to speak with him. But Uh, Because of the other conversation, they never got a chance to speak that evening. 
And so the following evening, Dr. Jones is walking to uh, the evening service, but he notices walking in the opposite direction is this man who was having an emotional response the night before whom he had never gotten a chance to talk to. And so they strike up a conversation, and the, the man says to Dr. Martin Lowe-Jones uh, something like, you almost had me. If you'd only gotten a chance to talk with me and pray with me, you might have gained another convert. Or if only you'd given some sort of invitation or prayer, I would have probably responded, but now it's, now it's too late. And, and uh, Dr. Martin Lodgers says, well, no, it's not too late. This is of the utmost importance. We need to talk about what it means to follow Jesus. We can have that conversation right now. And now check this out. The man says, no, 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 you didn't hear me. That was last night. That time's passed. And let that teach you a lesson that you should probably, you know, make sure that you talk with people when you, you know, when, when they're having that moment. You don't miss your moment next time, okay? That was last night. Tonight's a different story. And then so Dr. Jones responds saying this, and this is the powerful part. Sir, I don't know what happened to you, but if it didn't last 24 hours, it wasn't salvation. It wasn't God. It wasn't God then. If it, if it didn't last 24 hours, then it was an emotional moment, but it wasn't a true God moment of repentance. It lasts. So in conclusion, um, you might say, well, Eric, there's no way. I can't do this. You don't know what's been done. You don't know the debt that's been created between me and this other individual. The cost is too great. Well, then you're saying that you don't understand Jesus when he said this in Matthew 13, verse 44 through 46. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. And in his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy this field. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That what you found in Jesus is of such, of such precious treasure to you that it does not matter what it costs you, that you're willing to pay whatever the cost. It doesn't matter because look at what I found and you'll do it with joy and excitement because you know what you found in Jesus. Do you understand what you have in Jesus? The grace that's been shown you in Jesus, the fact that you were made by God and for God and he's made a way for you to now live within the purpose for which you were made. I mean, this is outstanding. This is what answers the question of life. But we go, the cost is too great. Well, then we don't understand what Jesus has really done for us. Do you understand what he's done for you? C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory goes, Indeed, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. That's who this first servant was in this story. He was half-hearted in his devotion. Are we? Who are you making pay rather than absorbing the cost yourself in light of what's been done for you? You cannot say that you have really understood the forgiveness of God if you are unforgiving yourself. You can't be forgiven yet unforgiving. We saw that to be the case with the servant because he suffered the consequences for his debt once he showed that, his, that he was truly unchanged. But if you really understand the forgiveness you've received, you'll be changed by it. If you're changed by it, you will show it. Would you allow me to pray for you? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity just to be together. Though we're online, I pray that your word would not return void, that it would change hearts, it would open minds. God, that if there are people who are watching this morning who do not know you, Jesus, I pray that this would be their moment, that they would be stirred, that there would be a... Uh, 
a, a response of faith to trusting in you, to turning from other things, to trusting in you to be their Lord, to be their Savior, to be the center of their world, to be what they're living for. And I pray that they respond to you that way in this morning. Pray for the church, God, for the church, that we would be people who demonstrate this and that the world would take notice of it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you.